Hey everybody, welcome to the Inspire Podcast. This is Matt. And this is Brad. We are the pastors of Inspire Church in Westfield, Indiana. If you want to stay up to date with everything that's happening around here, be sure to subscribe to our text updates by texting the keyword INSPIRE. That's N-S-P-I-R-E to 317-451-4111. We hope the following message inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Chose to join us here at Inspire on this. I guess it's a historic moment. We are prepared and we have been kind of getting ready for sharing our services over uh, live streaming, and so we're just kind of jumping into the deep end today. Uh, and so we're glad you chose to join us here. And we are. We're just going to kind of try to continue on just like normal if you can. And one of the things that I will say, and uh, I don't want to uh, overthink this too much, but I honestly think that today's message may be timed perfectly for what we are experiencing currently. We've been in a series called Signs, and in our Signs series, we've been looking at the signs of John. Now, uh, what we've talked about in this this series is like John was one of the followers of Jesus. He's one of the early disciples who got to be in Jesus' inner circle, and he wrote with an intentionality. And lots of scholars believe that he was encouraged to write this book and that he had a purpose behind what he was doing. Uh, Most people believe that he was trying to communicate that Jesus is the Son of God, and that He is who He said He was, then also that He did what He said He did, which was to come and take away the sins of the world. And so, this was kind of the intentionality. Now, what John does in his book is he communicates, and he starts to tell different stories, and then he shares different signs. Like in week one of this series... Uh, we talked about how uh, Jesus is at a wedding, and he takes a, uh, a normal family gathering, and he turns it into a, a, a miracle moment, and he invites the people to participate in the miracle, and he takes water, and he turns it into wine. He asks these guys to fill these big basins with water, and so they get to work, and they get to participate in the miracle, and then, and then Jesus turns it to wine, and that was, uh, that was the story John tells us early on in the scriptures, but then he ends that kind of point or that story by saying this was the first sign. Now when you hear that, if you're studying, you would, you would learn that like uh, when someone says there's a first sign, that must mean that there is a second sign. And so last week we talked about the second sign. And uh, Brad dive, uh, uh, dove into that sign a little bit and he shared with us about how Jesus came to be a barrier breaker. And, and there were really three stories that lead up to one big miracle that is where Jesus heals an official son. There were uh, two other stories that led up to that. There was Nicodemus who came, and, and Nicodemus asked some questions, some very uh, literal questions of what Jesus means about being born again. And then, then Jesus meets a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, and, and he shares with her, and she has a moment where she comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And then there's this guy who's a Roman official. He comes to Jesus and, and asks Jesus to heal his, uh, his son, and he does. And John says... That was the second sign. So we've had two signs, and now we find ourselves sitting really right here wondering, what is the third sign? John actually quits numbering the signs at this point, and he starts diving into some different stories, and he shares, he's really chronicling uh, what Jesus' ministry and message is about. And he, we're going to jump into John chapter 5 today, and so if you want to, and you're, you can grab your phone and follow along, we're going to cover a lot of scripture today, uh, and so we're just going to dive right in. In John chapter 5, it says this, sometime later... Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is a 
there, now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else jumps in ahead of me. It's believed, actually, that uh, the, 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 the common thought at that time is that the, the people who were uh, physically uh, ill or whatever would be around this pool, and they had this belief that the angels would come down and stir the water, and the first person into the pool would be healed. And so they would all kind of gather around when someone would see the water healing. It was like a, a, a competition to see who could get in the pool the fastest. And this guy's saying, I can't get, I can never beat anybody. I can't beat others into the pool because I'm so slow. I have no one else to help me get down there. Verse 8, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man is cured, or the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. Which, by the way, if someone who heals you has the power to heal you, says, Get up, pick up your mat and walk, you do so. Like you don't want to be rude, and obviously you are thankful, and so he does what he's told. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now this is the third sign that John shares with us. And as you start to dive into this story, there's a whole bunch of things that are happening here. And today I want to unpack for you what I think John is trying to teach us and also what's on display in this miracle. A little bit later in John chapter 5, actually the Pharisees, as they're questioning this man, this man leaves and, and John tells us that Jesus circles back around to the guy and, and basically reveals his identity to him, but also gives him some instruction and in which that man now knows that it's Jesus who healed him. And so he goes back to the Pharisees, probably not to be a snitch, but probably because there were some legal ramifications that he faced, because breaking the Sabbath is a big deal. And he didn't want to be accused of breaking the Sabbath, and he didn't want to be uh, caught legally in a, in a space where he's not doing what he was supposed to do. Actually, the Sabbath is one of the most, one of the big uh, laws. Like, you didn't break the Sabbath. You could be stoned, killed, put to death if you didn't keep the Sabbath. So I imagine he probably went back to the Pharisees as a way to justify himself and as also to say, no, Jesus is the one who healed me. This is uh, the story that John tells us. Now the Pharisees are upset with Jesus and they go and they approach Jesus and they want to have this conversation with him uh, about why he's commanding people to not only carry their mat, which was a breaking of the Sabbath, but it was also a, a debate at the time was whether or not it was legal to even heal on the Sabbath. And we'll get to that here in just a second. So they go to Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. Uh, they, they pin him down a little bit, and Jesus gives them this answer to why are you healing on the Sabbath? He gives them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Healings and signs were the things that the people wanted to see quite frequently. They would return to Jesus and say, hey, why don't you show us another sign, another miracle? And they believed that it was like a testimony showing that uh, his signs were like a testimony showing that he had authority, that he had been uh, given some sort of power or authority uh, from God. It was like an endorsement stamp. And so oftentimes when people would ask for signs and wonders, they were really looking to just kind of validate that Jesus is someone who has authority. This is what's going on here. This idea of, of Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath, would require some sort of, of authority. Now Jesus jumps in with this debate about healing on the Sabbath, and they're asking him all sorts of questions, and his response is, like, I only do what the Father shows me, and I only do what the Father does. I'm trying to show you what God is like. Colossians 1.15 actually says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. So Jesus is trying to show him, this is the stuff that God cares about. These are the things that God does. Now, Jesus... He, uh, he didn't, this, this debate of the Sabbath, this isn't the only time that, uh, that Jesus debates with the religious leaders of the Sabbath. And I know sometimes what gets caught, or gets taught, excuse me, about what Jesus is telling people about the Sabbath is, and especially in Christian circles, that Jesus is like just trying to negate all of the Old Testament, and Jesus is trying to, to wipe it all out. And even here, we've talked about how we are set free from living underneath the law. Paul teaches us that we're no longer under the law, but we are under grace. But Jesus, while he walked the earth, he actually lived under the law. He lived under it so that he could set us free from it. And so Jesus actually is not throwing out the Sabbath. He's not saying the Sabbath doesn't matter. He's not trying to negate it. He actually is engaging in some discussion about this. Lots of times Christians will say, well, Jesus, he jumps in. Basically what he's saying is, I'm the son of God. I can do whatever I want. You can't tell me what to do. If you knew who I was, you wouldn't be asking me these questions. That's not actually what Jesus is doing here. And today I want to show you a little bit about what Jesus is really up to. Because Jesus isn't playing the I'm the son of God card. Don't mess with me. You know, Jesus frees us from this Old Testament. He sets us free and allows us to be able to live under the grace. And, and he is engaging in these discussions in what's called the halaha, which is a way, uh, the Jewish way of saying the, the legal debates. In their time, there was a way of being able to debate from a religious way without, within the law to be able to describe and to establish uh, how, you would, how you would live out the rules, live out the law, the instruction that God has for the people. And that was, the debate was called the halaha. And he shows how it's, uh, how he's debating within the law, within the structure. He's not wiping it all out. He's engaging in it. He's trying to show them what it's really about. And what would generally happen was within this debate, you would take the two things and you would, you would kind of weigh them out. And the Jewish people would say, well, one's lighter and one's heavier. The heavier would generally win a debate. One thing would be more important. One thing would be greater in its weight than another. This is where we get that idea of the scales of justice. You may have seen the, the image of the lady with her uh, holding the scales. 
She's blindfolded, and then she also has a little sword that kind of just shows that she's going to execute grace. She will defend, uh, she'll defend justice. That's where we get this image a little bit. And so Jesus is, is jumping into this debate, talking about Sabbath, and he's showing his people, he's showing the people who are listening to him that there's something happening here that you need to understand. Now, John gives us Jesus' response to the Pharisees about breaking the Sabbath. But there are other accounts, like I said, where Jesus is debating the Sabbath with these religious leaders. And there's something we can learn as we watch closely in what he's trying to communicate to the people in these debates. Like there's this other example in Matthew chapter 12, where Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus is, is with his leaders and his disciples and they're walking through a field. And I'm just going to read you this account. And Matthew 12 verse 1 says this, at, the, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Matthew's very clear to tell us that this is the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain to eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, lots of times we think the Pharisees, oh man, they're always out just trying to get Jesus. Not all of them were actually. If they were following Jesus, some of them may have had some vindictiveness about them where they were trying to catch him in something. But actually, a lot of them believed who he was, who he was claiming to be. But they would find themselves wrestling with this tension. Like, wait a second. I feel like what... I mean, I'm, I'm with you, Jesus, like all the way up to here. But now I feel like this one here is breaking the Sabbath. I've always believed that following uh, that Jesus, that if you're the true Messiah, the Messiah can't break the Sabbath. Any, and just to be clear, any Messiah who breaks the law is no Messiah at all. Like that was the general rule about these messiahs. So if, they, if there was a messiah who came along but that encouraged people to disregard the law, he would not be seen as the messiah. So you'd have these people, Pharisees, seekers, coming and following Jesus, saying, Jesus, I, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. And then there'd be moments where it would look like it was coming in such contrast to what they'd always believed. And then they, they would see like Jesus come face to face with this Sabbath breaking. And they're like, dear goodness, Jesus, what are you doing? I, I mean, I, I'm not sure I can endure this. I was with you all the way until here. And so I don't believe every time a Pharisee is asking the questions, they're trying to trap him. Like these guys were probably seekers. They were probably with him and they were wrestling with what they were seeing. They say it's unlawful for what they're doing on the Sabbath. Verse 3, he answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered into the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them, lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read the law that the priests, or in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words meant, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, there was this basic belief that a prophet who performs signs and wonders and teaches his followers to violate the commandments of the Torah is a false prophet. And so Jesus is here displaying something that looks like breaking the law. And he starts to engage in this conversation that is this halaha, this legal debate, this legal 
argument. And it's important for him to be able to justify the actions of his followers because his, teach, his followers, he was endorsing them and he was responsible for their actions. And so Jesus takes this very seriously and he begins to, to jump into this because also there's another bit of this. Like if Jesus' critics could prove that he was a sinner and condoning sin and that he was, then they could say that he's not the Messiah. And more than that, if he was proven to break the Sabbath, they even had legal grounds for his execution. So this is a pretty big deal. Remember, Sabbath is one of the big ones. It's up there with like idolatry, worshiping other gods or adultery or murder. That's one of the big deals within the law is keeping the Sabbath. So, uh, another thing that's kind of interesting to me, just to throw this out there, and, uh, and this is where I get a little bit into my nerdiness, but I enjoy some of this stuff. Uh, how in the world do these guys define what was work on the Sabbath? Have you ever wondered about that? Like, how did they decide what was work and what wasn't? They all, the, the scriptures were the root for everything. And so they looked at the scriptures to try to help define what was and what wasn't work. And actually there was a prescription within the scriptures at the time that if someone were to break the Sabbath, uh, that if they did so, they could be put to death. And so if you were to put somebody to death, you had to have a really good definition about what was work and what wasn't because you didn't want to have some sort of loose interpretation having all sorts of people being stoned on so all sorts of crazy interpretations of what was work and what wasn't. And so you had this, uh, they would look to the scriptures. So they started actually in the creation story. God rests on the seventh day. And so what they did was is they figured if he rested from creation, what were the things that he did in the creating process that must have been defined as work? And so they, they would look at all the work that he did in creating the world, like creating light, creation of substance, formation, separation, planting, etc. All those things must have been work that were outside of the realms of what God wanted his people to do on the Sabbath. And so they went to the scriptures there. They also looked at Exodus 31 very seriously that said that anybody who would break these laws could be put to death, but they were also encouraged and told not to even you were supposed to plan ahead for the Sabbath. And so if you were traveling and you were, this is back when the, the Israelites, they were just the Hebrew people, they didn't even have a country yet. They didn't have the promised land. Traveling through the desert, they were told that they needed to plan ahead for the Sabbath, plan for rest. And so if you don't have the tabernacle set up before the Sabbath begins, Starting late is going to be forbidden. So even the work of assembling the tabernacle was to be uh, pr uh, prohibited. You couldn't do it. And so they would look at even the work that was required within the setting up and the tearing down of the tabernacle. And they would say that that also helped constitute the rules and the framework of what it meant to work on the Sabbath. So they started into these legal arguments, and then they would start to define that. And so there was like, don't work on the Sabbath was one of the laws. And they started adding in all these interpretations. There were hundreds of different additional interpretations added to the original commandment about keeping the Sabbath holy. They, they also, within this, started these whole debates about what was the Sabbath and where could you carry things. Because, I mean, dear goodness, you had to at least carry your food to the table, maybe. Like, you had to be able to carry something. If you couldn't walk, how'd you get out of bed? Like, there were, so they started creating all sorts of little guidelines and interpretations on what it meant to keep the Sabbath and not to work. And so they had these things where they would, uh, they started creating interpretations. And so one of the, my favorite things is like how they would try to twist the rules. They had this thing that was called an aruv, which would be kind of like your, your home area. So you could carry things within four cubits of your own home. 
or your courtyard. And then what started happening is the family started linking their homes together to kind of create an expanded version of what was allowed to walk and carry and do work was inside a, of your communal aruv. The rabbis would create what was called rabbinic fences, basically saying these are the parameters of where the Sabbath uh, aruv would end and begin. And so you wouldn't want to get outside of those things. Some people believe that actually when Jesus tells the man to pick up his mat and carry it and walk, uh, this is, gets a little weird, but they even they tried to defend his actions by saying, well, the only reason why Jesus is doing that is there may have been rabbis at the time who actually said within the whole city walls was inside the aruv. And so they were all connected. And so you could actually do work within the city. You could carry within the city, but it wasn't an accepted interpretation, so some of the rabbis disagreed with it. You see how this is going. This is what happens when you start creating rules, right? Whenever you start creating rules, then you start trying to create justifications or stretch the rules or parameters or find the loophole so that you can get around what the rules are trying to teach you. This is what Jesus is dealing with. And so when he starts to debate with these people, you'll notice if Jesus were saying to the, to the Pharisees, listen, I'm the son of God, I do what I want. He wouldn't debate with them and give them this argument that he gives them. Notice what he says to them. When they ask him, why in the world are your disciples? Why are they husking grain on the Sabbath? He doesn't just say, hey, it's because they're with me and I'm the son of God. Don't worry about it. That's not what he says, actually. He starts into like a, a line of reasoning. He goes into the halaha and he begins to give a legal argument. You see, one of the general understandings at the time was that the temple service, it was, re, it was taught that the temple sacrifices were supposed to happen continually. The fire on the altar was never to go out, as well as every morning and every night at sunset and sunrise, or I should do it the other way, sunrise and sunset, there would be a, a, a lamb sacrificed on the altar every day. And that was a commandment that they were told that they, were, they should do every day. And so they were, it was believed that how do you rectify? Like God says that you should do no work on the Sabbath, but then he also says that with these, these sacrifices in the temple are always supposed to happen. How do we justify? What do you do when there's two commandments that come face to face with each other that seem to conflict with each other? God says don't do work on the Sabbath, but he also says you should always keep the sacrifice going. What do you do when these two come face to face? Well, the rabbis actually justified, how do you do this? What do you do when these two come face to face? Preferably, you would find a way to uphold both laws. But when you cannot, they, they justified that if it, you would take a positive command, you should always do, would always outweigh a negative command, something you should not do. Don't do work was lighter than keep the sacrifices going in the temple. You see how that works? The positive command always outweighed a negative command. They, the way they actually justified this is because of, in Leviticus 18, the Lord says, Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. The rabbi said, Well, he says that you'll live by them, not die by them. And so um, the positive commands must always outweigh the negative commands. Hopefully you're tracking with me, because this is what Jesus is getting into, because uh, he begins to start to have this halaha with the, the Pharisees, and he says, don't you remember, when David's men were hungry, he went to the temple. Now what we've, we've already established is the temple was greater than the Sabbath. 
You were supposed to keep the temple commands and keep those commands. Those were positive commands. They were greater than the Sabbath. So we already know that's established. So when David comes, and he comes to the temple, and his men are hungry, one of the things that was a part of the temple is that there was, just before the, the, the temple curtain that went into the Holy of Holies, there was a bread or a table that had 12 loaves of bread on there. There's so much to this. I could, I could go for like a whole other series on this one. Uh, he would, he would take the, the bread of presence and it would sit there for an entire week. And David was not a permitted person who was supposed to be able to eat it. At the end of the week when it would get replaced, the priest would be able to eat the bread. They were the ones permitted to eat that bread. David comes to the temple. His men are hungry and there's nothing to feed them except for the bread of presence. And David is given the bread. He takes it. He eats it. And it was generally understood that, Jesus, that God did not condemn David for eating that bread even though he broke the law. And the reason that was justifying that is that David, was, that, that David was justified because God cared more about David's and his men's need than the temple and its rules and laws associated with it. So God is saying human need is greater than temple. It's heavier. And so Jesus is in this debate saying if temple is greater than Sabbath and human need is greater than temple, then that must mean that human need is actually greater than the Sabbath. And then he goes on and he quotes a verse that he uses all the time when he starts to talk about the Sabbath, when he starts talking about what God is really up to. And Hosea, one of the prophets, he said this in Hosea 6.6, 6, he says... I, uh, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement for God or of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, what God is up to, what God cares most about, is not all of the laws, not all the keeping of the Sabbath, not all of the sacrifices that are on the temple. Not all those, the, the sacrifices, the bread of presence, it's a, it's a very great and important part of it. But that, if you, you do that religiously, but you disregard the needs of mankind, those who I love, then you've missed the entire point. Now, Jesus debates with the people, and then he ends all of this, and he says, listen, he, he makes this comment, he says, the, the Son of Man is the Lord of Sabbath. Now, that's the line that usually trips people up, because they hear that, and they think, well, that's Jesus' trump card. That's the one where he's saying, like, none of this other stuff really matters because I am the Son of God. And I know that that might not make sense to you, and I want to show unpack for you. The, the, uh, the term, the Son of Man, had two different ways it could be interpreted. You see, in Daniel, the book of Daniel, he says that I see the Messiah coming like a Son of Man, riding on the clouds. So the term Son of Man is sometimes identified as being uh, a way of describing the Messiah who is going to come. But it was also a phrase used to describe just mankind and its generality, human beings. So sometimes it can be taken one way and other times it can be taken another. And lots of times Christians have interpreted Jesus' phrase by saying the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath as a way of saying I'm the Messiah, get off me. That's not what Jesus is actually saying. In this moment, I actually believe that Jesus is trying to say that the Son of Man, mankind, is actually the ruler of Sabbath. Jesus also says, and been known to say that, like, that uh, Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. Or recently I heard Andy Stanley, who I love to quote all the time, he says, no one has, uh, talking about Sabbath, Sabbath being created for man, not man for Sabbath, he says, uh, another way of saying this is like, no one has kids, so there's someone to play with all the toys. 
Like, no, you have toys for the children. Remember why Sabbath was even created. Sabbath was created for a nation of people who were previously slaves. They were used to their value and worth being identified by how much they could create, how much they could produce. And God says, listen, you will rest. I will make it a mandate. There will be one day that you realize that your value does not come from what you produce, but it comes by who you are and whose you are. You are the son of man. You are my children. And I love you, not for what you create, not for what you produce, but because of who you are. So rest. Relax. Be. Just be. Because I care first and foremost for you. And what began happening was, it's like the, the laws and the rules trumped the people. The laws and the rules began to be the things that held the people from being able to live life at its best. They were the things that inhibited people. And so when they were like, the healings that Jesus is doing, Jesus is, I believe, he heals on the Sabbath to make a point. He's trying to help the leaders understand that, like, hey, you may think, you may think that it's unlawful to heal on the Sabbath, but I want to show you something. And then he teaches on it. There's another example where Jesus goes to a temple and there's a man who has a shriveled hand. Uh, I recently read that like people were trying to figure out what was wrong with it. Uh, there's a, 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 another book that's not included in a lot of the scriptures that actually describes the man as a mason. So his hand was probably crushed because he was working with big stones. His hand was crushed. And he comes to Jesus and he says, uh, he's there in the temple. He's, he's there with the religious leaders, I should say. And they ask him, Jesus, is it permitted? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus begins into some teachings. And he starts saying, uh, start talking about how you would have mercy on an animal that fell into a hole, but why wouldn't you have mercy on a human being? They think it's work. God created through magic or powers on, on, the, uh, on the six days, but he rested on the seventh, so you shouldn't do any of those sort of signs and wonders on the Sabbath, right? And Jesus is like, no, 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 I don't think that's true. And he says, just to show you that I have the power to be able to do that, he tells this man to stretch his hand, and he heals the man's hand. What Jesus is showing, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to restore a balanced perspective regarding Sabbath observance that prioritizes human need. And then he heals. You see, we can get caught up in following the rules. We can get caught up in doing things the right way way and trying to make sure that, that everybody's living right and you kind of start losing the reason behind what's happening in the first place. You can become so religious that you stop loving your neighbor. You can get so caught up in all of those things that you think that God uh, cares more about the sacrifices, which Hosea says, no, I don't care about those things. I want you to have regard and relationship with me. Jesus wanted the Sabbath to be kept he wanted it to be important, but only according to the spirit in which God gave it. He didn't want us to care more about keeping the laws than loving our neighbors. I think about where we're at right now in our country and in our communities. Things are shutting down, and I've even seen people saying things like, oh man, we should at least go to church. Like, God, like we need to be able to honor God. What does it look like for us to live out our faith right now? It's, we need to show God that we love him and be present within the church. And I would say more than that is God could actually, God doesn't really care if you're sitting in the room with me this morning. 
We actually have chosen not to gather as a way of loving our neighbors, the loving the least of these, trying to slow down the spread of a virus that actually makes some people that we love and care about more susceptible. And so we've made decisions following that guideline because people should matter more than rules and restrictions and laws. Now, I'm not saying that you throw those things out. I do believe we should gather as a church. I do believe those things matter. But when you put the two together and you see one versus another, loving your neighbor and keeping the Sabbath, I would say loving your neighbor is heavier. When Jesus says one is, one is greater or there's something greater here, I don't believe he's saying that he is what is greater what he's saying is like, I want you to see human need is greater than keeping the Sabbath. The God of the universe knows where you are. He knows your story. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows your fears, your anxieties. He knows the things that you are so excited about this week. He knows that you are probably missing March Madness like I am. He knows all of those things. And he sees you and cares for you and he loves you. And then just in case you ever wonder whether or not he does it, he then goes and performs a miracle to show you that he is who he says he is. Today, I want you to think about this third sign. And yes, Jesus heals the man and tells the man to pick up a mat and go. And the sign is miraculous, right? But the message that Jesus is teaching us is even as, is just as miraculous. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we wonder, does God see me? Does God know me? Does God care about my needs? Or, is, or are the rules more important? And God says, no, 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 the rules never trump you. You are way more important to me. So wherever you are, Today, may you know that the Son of Man, the daughter of man, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And may you know that the God, the creator of the earth, knows you and loves you and cares most about your well-being. And may you come to find life living in the freedom that is under grace and not the law. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Westfield area, we'd love to see you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions and more information about our services and family ministries, check out our Facebook page or visit us online at www.inspire.church.